What is your first memory of drinking drugs? My mum. She was, yeah, always drinking, always taking prescription pills from the age of about four or five, I guess I remember. I guess subconsciously you kind of learnt when she was doing it, why she was doing it, because she'd be like really upset, crying, upset, and then just be drinking, taking pills. So I think... I imagine that's kind of the first exposure to it, that first learnt behaviour. Oh, okay, drink and drugs if you're, is what you do when you're sad. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So that would be my first exposure to it, I would say. Mm. How old was you when you first, like the first time you remember something like that? Probably, yeah, five or six, I would say. Mm. Yeah. When did you start taking drugs and why? I started taking drugs when I was about 12 or 13, probably 13 and started smoking weed. And the main reason was I wanted friends. I found it really hard to to keep friends because my behaviour was so dysfunctional due to the life that I had had going on at home. You know, I was just kind of disloyal and behaved strangely in, in many ways that, that kind of pushed people away. So drugs was a way for me to keep people around. You know, like I'd like if my dad was working and my my mum had moved out by that point, so I'd have the house to myself. So I kind of tried to make my house as a place for people to come and use drugs because it mean, meant I had friends. And it was also obviously to be cool that was kind of smoking weed at 13 was like the thing. <laughs> it was like the way to, to integrate with the cool kids, I guess, because I never really fitted in with them. I didn't really fit in anywhere. So this was like something that I was not really afraid of as well. I wasn't afraid of taking drugs. So it was kind of like an easy way for me to, to try and keep people around. I think, yeah, that was the first time. But then... Obviously, progressed on to cocaine by the time I was 15. Wow. I think 15, yeah, first time. Maybe 16, actually. Yeah, first time. But again, it was all for the same reasons. It was just, I always wanted to be the first to do things that were dangerous or difficult, um, or difficult in, in the eyes of kids. Mm. So, yeah, I remember having like a, a party when I was, for my 16th birthday, I think actually, I tried it when I was 15 and then I got it on my 16th birthday at my mum's house. I had a birthday party there. I don't know where she was, whether she was in or not, but yeah, and that was when I sort of gave drugs to everybody else in our year. And yeah, and it was just a way for me to be, to try and be cool and just to be liked and to fit in. And at that point, you don't really see, you don't see anything wrong with it. And I don't think there really was much wrong with what happened on it at that point. Like, you talk nonsense, really. That was probably the worst the worst thing that could happen whilst taking cocaine at 16 and drinking alcohol. If anything, it stopped you being drunk. And, yeah, you just got well chatty and well, like, lovey. And, yeah, you kind of just thought you was really cool and probably didn't even really do that much because it's probably not even doing it right. It's probably blowing most of it away. <laughs> so just, but yeah, it was just, yeah, it felt like at the time it was fun and we were just having a great time and it was very careless. It was very, and there was no sort of supervision as well. There was no, there was no adult in my life telling me that it was wrong. There was no one there to say you shouldn't be doing this. And they were, yeah, no, I was not, don't get me wrong. It's not like I was doing cocaine in front of my mum, but she would have known that something was happening. Mm. I think both parents did, but they never said anything. They never, because I guess they didn't really have a leg to stand on. So, mm. so yeah, I guess that would be um, my first time taking, it, and then first time taking coke would have been then, and then obviously I started taking all types of drugs after that. Once you, once I did cocaine, it was like yeah, I could do anything. Mm. Um, and they were, but I was always afraid of crack, and I was afraid of heroin, so I never did that. Mm. I never ever went near them because I was, I also you kind of had this view that they were dirty and for um, homeless people and stuff like that. Whereas cocaine was portrayed to be like a, mm. 
rich man's drug or, you know, like a posh drug, for example, and just people could, and it still is today, people, it's just such a flippant drug. People take it and they don't give a fuck. They don't think it's anything. It's like, it's a class A. Mm. This is a class A drug for a reason. And there's only one ingredient different to to crack than co- than cocaine, and that's like I think it's benzocaine or uh, something like that. Um, baking powder they put in it to make it like rock form, and you smoke it. So it's ingested in a different way. But the reality is, it's the same drug. But yeah, it's no one seems to give a shit. Do you remember the moment it went from being fun doing this to fuck? I'm addicted to this, and I need this. I don't remember the exact moment when, but I remember around the sort of time where I couldn't stop doing it every weekend and that was about 22. Yeah, so it didn't take long. So I was just at six years of using it. And then by the time I was 22, I remember I, I couldn't go a weekend without it really. And then it just, it progresses from there to every weekend as well. That was just once a week. But then it was right twice a week then it was three times a week then it was four times a week and that progression happened over the course of sort of three years the next three years Mm. till I was like 23 24 till it then it eventually had proper hold of me at that point but Mm. I think there was kind of no going back after about 22 because if I'd have managed to curb it at 21 then it would have been fine I could have I could have gone right I need to have a year off it could have probably been able to stop then but once you get into that habit of doing it twice a week every week for months and months and months. Very hard to undo that. Mm. Why do you think you become addicted to drugs? Low self-worth. I think every addict that I've ever met and ever spoken to has low self-worth, low self-esteem, or has suffered from it at some point in their life. And as a result, when you take class A substances, when the feeling that you get off of taking class A substances, it changes something within you that you didn't have before. So if you have low self-worth, low self-esteem, or you're shy, you're insecure, when you start taking class A drugs, it gives you a false sense of security, gives you an an ability to do things you weren't able to do, a confidence you didn't have, Um, whatever it is, the inability to communicate more, you know, whatever it is, it it will change something for you. Each individual may be different, but that change is what makes it addictive to that person. That's why you very rarely, or I've never met somebody who's really secure, become an addict. But someone who's insecure, when it gives them that additional behavioural trait that they didn't have before, they then become dependent on that thing to continue with doing the things that they wanted to do socially, which they couldn't do before. So it removes inadequacies, I guess, in a way, temporarily, in enabling you to to perhaps be more adventurous and to be more entertaining and all of that kind of stuff. But it, it starts with that. But what happens is three, four years at best that will last. And after that, that doesn't happen anymore. It's the, the complete opposite. You have the inability to do anything remotely social, cannot communicate, don't want to spend time with friends. The only thing you want to do is be alone and take drugs. You don't want to see anyone. You feel even more ashamed, even more worthless than you did ever did before. So every shortcut has a consequence and that's the consequence of this. It's like, yeah, you're taking it and it's working short term, but you keep doing it. You're never going to get the growth and progression for you as a person socially that you need through that drug. It's not, it's going to neglect your ability to grow. It's going to neglect your mental health. It's going to neglect you maturing into an adult and into a man or into a woman. It's, it just stops everything. And then before you know it, for a blink of an eye, your life has gone by. 10 years have passed and you've just gone, mm. fuck. And then what happens is you're a 15-year-old in a 25-year-old's body. Mm. And if you want to stop taking drugs, you've got to face that reality. Mm. And that's fucking hard. That's painful. That, that's the bit that lots of people struggle to to get over is accepting and, and acknowledging where they are emotionally and mentally as a person when they stop taking drugs because that's what happens when you stop. You have to face the truth of yourself and then that's a really painful acknowledgement for most people who have spent 10 years abusing drugs to avoid something within themselves. It's a really painful thing to acknowledge. What makes you an addict? Mm-hmm. 
I think the definition of being an addict is is taking something and not being able to stop taking it and being dependent on that thing. And it doesn't have to be a substance. It can be people, it can be love. It's being dependent on something outside of you to survive. That is what makes an addict, in my opinion. You're dependent on something or someone um, to either hide yourself, your low self-worth and insecurities or to validate you. So it doesn't necessarily, like I said, the drugs is the hiding. Drugs hides it, enables you to keep things buried and locked away, enables you to continue to wear a mask until it doesn't anymore. So that would be kind of the substance addiction. But then when you have things like love and friendships or relationships um sex that's an addiction to validation and that's in it that's not um taking something to hide something it's it's investing your 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 self-worth into something else outside of you so a person or a thing is making you feel good by being there it is it is also hiding at the same time you know it's that person is there so therefore enables me to not acknowledge the truth of the fact that I feel worthless when they're not. Mm. So I'm addicted to that person. I'm addicted to love. I'm addicted to attention. I'm addicted to validation. If I'm addicted to that, it's because without it, I feel worthless. That's that's the thing that a lot of people don't really understand about addiction as well. Everybody labels it as a, it's a substance thing, you know, oh, I'm addicted to coke or whatever. I think the bigger issue is things like addiction to attention, addiction to social media, likes, comments, all this kind of stuff. Like it's just as damaging. It's the same behavior. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's obsessive, an obsessive nature towards something that enables you to not feel the low self-worth and low self-esteem that, that you have by nature. And then, yeah, it's, the hard, the harder thing with with things that are not substances like love, and like social media attention, is that no one's really gonna. It's, you're not really ruining ruin, ruining anybody's life from doing it. You know, you're kind of. There's not anything inherently bad about it. No, I mean you could be breaking hearts, your own heart and others in relationships if you're addicted to it, because essentially if you're addicted to love, you're never going to be capable of it. Mm. It will never be enough. It will never feel the hole that you want it to fill. So you'll keep getting it, obtaining it, and then destroying it because it didn't fill the hole. You know, so everybody looking outwards to fix what's inwards is never going to fix the problem. So, but that's what makes it harder to give those things up because even in society as well, everybody, nobody's going to tell you you're doing anything wrong. Everyone be, everybody's going to, oh, just, for example, again, you use relationships. Oh, it just didn't work out this time. Oh, what happened? This happened, blah, blah, blah. They're not going to say, oh, you've got a problem. Mm. Like, because on the surface, it's, it's, it doesn't really look that way because everyone uses social media all the time. Most people date all the time. And if they break up with someone, they'll, they'll date straight away after as well. Mm. It's like everybody, is, everybody sees this as just normality now. So it's kind of like, it's like a gray area that nobody's really prepared to acknowledge because it's normal, but it's it's really not. It's only normal over the last 10 years because of dating apps, because of social media. Mm. But the reality is everybody in that situation is seeking their validation from external means because the truth is so many people feel worthless without anybody to validate them and tell them they're enough, even by being there or giving them attention. That is enough for them to feel better about themselves. And they cannot cope without it because they'll feel bored, they'll feel lonely, they'll feel depressed, and they'll feel worthless, feel anxious. They need to be constantly distracted and constantly validated just to cope, to get through every single day. And that's, that's so sad, isn't it? It's like, that's another, that's the biggest addiction that most people have right now, I'd say more than any drug. And yet nobody talks about it. Do you think that, uh, people who are addicted to drugs are more likely to be addicted to validation, etc. Yes, one hundred percent. Because that means they definitely have low self worth and low self esteem if they've already been addicted to 
to drugs, the likelihood is once they give up the drugs, they'll pick up validation. Mm. But they probably already had that addiction already. Generally, people who are addicted aren't addicted to one thing. They're addicted to a lot of things. Anything that conceals or hides or distracts them from themselves, essentially, where they can stop looking and stop feeling about the truth about how they feel about themselves. So, yeah. Why do some people get addicted to drugs and some don't? This is like a big unanswered question, but I think I have the answer. And it is insecure versus secure. I think secure people don't get addicted to drugs because it doesn't give them anything. It, it, they they take drugs and it's like, oh, that was fun. That's it. Because they're already confident. They already love themselves. Mm. They don't need to run from themselves. They're fully in touch with their emotions. They're very self-aware. So somebody like that, by nature, who's been brought up in a way that has built those mental skills within them, they're never going to get addicted to drugs. Never, because they would, versus somebody who's insecure, low self-worth, hates themselves, has had a terrible upbringing. Not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily just have to be a terrible upbringing as well. It could be an incident, a, a thing, one thing that happened that destroyed this person's self-worth. Mm. Somebody said something to them at school. So it could be so small and seem very insignificant, but whatever it is, it is it's damaged their self-worth in some way and it never got never got healed, never got repaired, never got explained to them that it wasn't their fault. And as a result, they've had this low self-worth building for years in their mind and then they start taking drugs. Versus somebody like that who is going to get confidence, who's going to get numbing from that feeling, who's going to, uh, anxiety is going to disappear. You know what I mean? They're not going to feel shy when they go out. You know, they're going to have all of these things they mm. didn't, they couldn't do before because their inadequacies, their feelings, their conscious beliefs about themselves won't be there. Mm. So when somebody like that starts taking drugs, oh, wow, I've got a whole new life here. Mm. And it gives so much to the insecure and vulnerable person versus the person who's secure and, and doesn't need any of that shit they already are all of those things mm. so when they take it it's just like a little bonus yeah, yeah. that they can live without because it doesn't really change their life mm. in any way so i that's my personal view there's no no facts or science to build that that i'm aware of but it's just my theory and my belief mm. um as to, to why some people do and some people don't yeah no i'd, I'd 100 agree just purely based off the fact i know a lot of people that still go out and do it every now and then. Mm. And they're not addicted. And I know they've been doing it for five, six years. But mm. then again, you got to think like, is it going to hit them at some point? If they do it for another four years, is that eventually going to be something that they become <sighs> that guy in the corner of the pub who only goes to the pub every Saturday to do it? Yeah, I think, yeah, there's a difference. Like addiction is is different, isn't it? Like people think addiction is just someone who does it every day. It's not. Addiction is someone who uses drugs might be once a week, might only be once a month, but when they use it, they use it for like a whole week mm. and they can't go long sustained periods without it. So somebody, if somebody can go six to nine months without it, you're not an addict, you're fine. Mm. But if you can't go a month and you're doing it every month without fail and you can't not do that, you're an addict. Mm. It's like people, people have this misconception that, Addiction is someone who just sits at home and does drugs every day. That's the end of addiction. Mm. That's the end. Addiction doesn't start there. Addiction starts by doing it every Friday. So if you're doing drugs every Friday right now and you have been for a while, you're addicted. So what would you say about somebody, just because I have like four people in mind um, that I know personally, not me, by the way, before <laughs> I had that. Um, what would you say uh for example, if somebody definitely doesn't do it all the time, is somebody I definitely would, or they're people that I definitely say are secure, they've got kids now, they've got a good family, all of that stuff. Um, but when they do go to the pub with their mates, maybe once a month or every now and then, if it's going about, they'll do it. Mm. But you know that they do it in that situation mm. and they do do that every time they are in that situation, but they don't... Do you know what if I'm saying? If they do that when they go out and they have a night out and they finish at one o'clock in the morning and they go home, 
no problem. I wouldn't. So I'm not gonna. I'm not sitting here recommending it because I still don't think. Mm. I think it's pointless. But it's not affecting their life. Right. It's not hurting anyone, and they don't do it in in a way that that destroys anyone around them. Do you mm. know what I mean? So it's like cool. If if I could do some drugs in in that way, not particularly coke. I'd never do that. I don't see the point in it. But like, if I could do, for example, MDMA once every few months at like a a festival. I probably would. Mm. I know I can't. I know I've ruined that. If I could do it in a safe way like that mm. every three months, especially things like psychedelics, I would do them. I'd love to try them. Yeah. I would 100% do them. Um, but sadly, I know I'm an addict and I know I can't do that. Right. Is that something that genuinely you would be scared to an extent of your, of your own self? It's not worth the risk for me. Mm. My life is pretty wonderful. I couldn't ask for more. Why would I risk it? Mm. Why would I risk it in order to experience something spiritual in psychedelics, which is what I believe. The only thing I, the only reason why I want to do it is for the spiritual connection that you can get. But you can do, you can get that same experience through dark rooms, through meditation. You just have to really work hard to do that. And I feel like that's perhaps the natural way to do it. Mm. And that's the, my goal to, to achieve that. I don't want to risk everything I've got to take a drug in order to, you know, have some spiritual experience. I feel pretty spiritual already. I feel pretty grounded. I feel like my life is going exactly as I want it. I don't need to add anything to it. Mm. Doing Everything I'm doing is working and there's no risk with what I'm doing. Mm. I feel like there is risk involved with that. As mm. being an addict, taking ayahuasca or DMT, there's it's a risk. Or taking any drug, any mind mood altering substance, it's a risk. Mm you run the risk that it, it triggers something in you that makes you want to use again, or because you're regularly inducing huge dopamine hits, your desire or craving to want to continue to, to have that feeling in other means is likely, or yeah, just your tolerant, it's there. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're still triggering that, that mind, um, that chemical reaction in your mind mm. that is using drugs, even though it's psychedelics and it's over longer periods of time. I, I still think you're triggering that that same chemical re, um, reaction in your mind that that any class A substance would give you, which is what I'm addicted to. So that's a risk. It's a risk, and that's just one that I'm I'm too scared right now to take. Mm-hmm. It might change. My opinion might change. I might feel different about it. I've considered considered it so much, um, but I just think why? Why? Mm. You know, if it's for the DMT thing, I've got to just push myself enough in the dark rooms to be able to do it. Do you know what mm. I mean? That takes five days to get there. So, but that 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 you can produce that from from dark room experience. Yeah, the only difference is you, you, you're you're producing it yourself, mm. so it's coming from within. Mm. You're not putting something in your body. Of course, it's allowing your body to release it from the penile gland at the bottom of your back. See, this is what I've just recently been. I've kind of switched my breath work, which you'd be very proud of me doing it every morning for the last well over a month now. Yeah, sick. It's part of my morning routine. But um, I've kind of moved on from the Wim Hof stuff mm. to that guy that I showed you, the Sandy breathwork guy. Yeah. And uh, it's like uh, breath of fire, so like the nose stuff. But the yeah, ones yeah. that I follow of his are like DMT release, but this still hasn't happened for me yet. Yeah, I'm doing yeah. the same one every morning. It's a DMT release breathwork, this... You're supposed to be able to see stuff, but nothing's happened yet. Yeah, but yeah. I haven't given up faith. I'm going to continue on. Practice. But you think that that is a genuine thing? You think from from I know breath in the work- dark in the dark rooms you can definitely do it, and breath work you can do it as well. And mm. uh, breath work's a lot harder. But the the dark room after five days, your body starts to release DMT. Mm. That's a fact. But stay there for five days is a challenge. Um, but yeah, my goal is to continue that. Mm. So that's the way I'm going to do it. Getting on to rehab, what was the hardest thing about rehab? Don't think there's one particular thing that's that's harder than another. You could the whole concept of it is the yeah, the whole experience of it, sorry, is is extremely difficult. Uh I think being away from my son was one of the hardest things, but going going into a place after bearing in mind you've been using every single day for months, and you go in there exhausted, rattled, and you've just stopped using a couple of days before and then you're just lumped into this house with a bunch of other addicts. None of you know each other. 
you're all fucking crazy and you basically have to go into group therapy and then one-on-one therapy every day for six to six to eight hours a day and talk about feelings that you've been running from for the last 25 years. Mm. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> yeah. um, crying in front of people that you don't know and listening to the most traumatic stories you've ever heard from people, people being trafficked as, you know, as children and stuff like that, sex trafficked as children and prostitutes from the age of 11. Um you know, mad, like crazy stuff that you just never even thought you'd hear. And they're all there and you're seeing crazy behaviour, people shaking and rocking back and forwards and because they're obviously coming off of certain prescription pills and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, people coming in, like one guy came in and then went to hospital because he was dying. You know, it's just, it's quite, quite chaotic and frightening and you just feel quite alone. You feel very alone and you're only allowed one phone call a day for 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's very hard. I was just very angry, very, very sad for the first few days. And then, and then after that, it became, started to feel like I was getting somewhere with it. I just, I just felt like I, I could do it. And I was just working really hard after like a week. Cause I took myself there the second time. First time was I was just playing playing the role. Just doing what they said and making them believe that I was really into it, but I wasn't at all. Second time I was really into it. I was really wanting to learn. I was really wanting to get clean. I was doing everything that they said, behaving and following rules, which I fucking hate doing. Um, complying and being on time and wearing a certain like clothing and stuff to the to the group therapies and you know being carrying yourself and communicating in a certain way and yeah it it was just going from just doing whatever you want whenever you want doing loads of drugs all the time and to going into that environment it's just like a massive shock it's just like fuck um but yeah it is it is very challenging the therapy I'd say probably the therapy might be one of the hardest things about it is when you're just speaking truthfully about something that you've buried for so many years for the first time. Like you always talk about these things when you're using, funnily enough, everybody talks about like their past and the childhood, all oh, this happened, that happened, because they're all geared up and all this buried stuff starts pouring out of them. But you don't ever feel anything when you're talking about it in that setting. But then when you go into rehab and all the drugs are gone and everything's out of your system and then you start having to talk about that stuff with real sincerity and going back in time and reliving these moments, it's brutal. Mm. Oh, I ripped my heart out. Oh, I just felt like a little boy. I felt like a lost little child that was just so scared and just wanted his mum. Mm. That was genuinely how I felt most of rehab, to be honest. And just like I wanted to cry every minute of every day, but I didn't know how to cry. Didn't know how to... The first time I cried, yeah, was because I knew what the therapist was trying to get me to do emotionally, and I cried because I was so frustrated that I couldn't. Mm. I knew he wanted me to touch an emotion, a feeling about some things that had happened in my life. He wanted me to feel it in order and cry on it, on that particular thing. And I, I was, I knew what he wanted, and I could get there just for a second, and I couldn't, and then I just cried because I was so angry. And so frustrated that my body had built such a defense against accessing this information that I couldn't reach it. I was like, I could see it. I knew what I needed to do. I knew what needed to happen. But my body physically would not let me do it. Mm. I couldn't cry. I couldn't cry over the things that hurt me the most. And that was, the, and I cried because I couldn't cry about those things. So mm. I cried about something else. Yeah. <laughs> do you know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That was probably the hardest things, I guess. They're some of the hardest things. What was your behaviour like as an addict? How long have we got? (laughs) This one could take a while. You're at 35 minutes. 36? 36. Right. I'll label it in some words and then I'll give some examples. (laughs) Disloyal. Dishonest, compulsive liar, arrogant, ignorant, stubborn, rude, 
and embarrassing. Yeah, those are the words I would use. <laughs> um, albeit though I was hardworking and successful though, I was extremely hardworking despite all of those fucking defects of character. One thing I did do well was I worked hard. I always worked hard and I always wanted to earn money. But in doing that, all of those other behaviours just enhanced even more. But my behaviour, I was, I'd never let anybody in. I'd never be honest with anybody about my, the truth of myself because I didn't know the truth of who I was. I'd never love anyone. I didn't love myself, so I couldn't possibly love anyone else. But I would constantly convince people that I loved them, women in relationships, always very quick to fall in love. But I didn't know what love was. I was throwing that word around. And I would I would convince people that I loved them. And then at a younger age, I'd just use that as a tool to sleep with women. And then I'd just never speak to them again. Like, yeah, just, every, everything and everyone around me was like um, a thing. It wasn't something that I could ever connect with. I could never be truly open with anything or anyone because I'd never let anybody in. So everything was kind of at a distance to me. Any relationship that I had, any friendship that I had, they were all kept at a certain distance in my mind. They would believe that they were really close. I'd let them believe that they were really close. But in my mind, they were, I could cut them off at any point. Mm. I'd always have to have that. And in, 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 in order to do that, I'd have to do something really hurtful to them without them knowing. So like cheating or trying to get with someone's girlfriend or, you know, just any anything that, that would keep them away, basically. Or the most important thing was that if they hurt me, I had something to throw back. So if I was always expecting everybody to do something bad to me. So as a result, I would do bad things to everyone around me in order to make myself feel more safe. Because then if somebody says, oh, your girlfriend's cheated on you, she fucked this guy, I'll just be like, it's all right, I fucked your sister. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? In my mind, that was my way of having defence. It was like, okay, I, yeah, I don't care. I've already slept with your sister or I, I kissed your mum. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was always about having something worse than what they could do to me mm. and then I could then it wouldn't hurt as much mm. which was just a ludicrous like it was insane to think that way but for some reason that was the that was the behavior that I had developed in order to to keep myself protected and I guess my mum kind of did that a little bit like she like when she told my dad that I wasn't his son because that was like a the same thing isn't it? it's like mm. Well, you might have just beat the shit out of me, but I fucked someone else and that's not your kid. Mm. Even though it wasn't true. Brutal. Do you know what I mean? It was kind of, I've got to do, I've got to have something, I've got to have something to keep in the, the locker that I can say or do that will be instantly take retribution against anybody that might be able to hurt me. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you know, any anybody that was trying to be close to me would all, always get hurt. Yeah, I was just... It's sad, really, isn't it, when you think that that's the way a mind can be twisted and torn into believing it's it needs to survive like that. Mm. No, and I can't. I don't know whether or not anybody else experienced that kind of behaviour. I imagine they do if they've had a similar life. But you know, I was speaking to an addict earlier, and he was saying that he just used to smash everything up. You know, he'd build something and break it, build something, break it. And I think like it's such a common theme. Like we. Addicts generally, a lot of them have great skills in so many different areas. and they, but So they'll build something for themselves in their life and then they just destroy it. Because mm. they're just, they're waiting for it to do, for them, they're waiting to be hurt. They're waiting for somebody to do something to them. So they'll destroy it first because then it's in their control and they can see it coming. Mm. So you kind of have this really dysfunctional behaviour of always walking around on a, almost like on a walking on eggshells, waiting for some bad stuff to happen. Mm. And as a result, hurting everybody around you just so that you can feel safe. Mm. But yeah, crazy behavior. Mm. How did you adjust to normal life when you left rehab? 
I didn't really adjust that that well at all. It was it was so hard. Coming out of rehab is the hardest bit of rehab. Rehab's the easy bit. Coming out of rehab and trying to function in society and in life with zero skills in doing it without drink or drugs mm. is the most challenging thing for any addict. Rehab's not the hard bit. <laughs> Although I just explained to you how hard it is when you come out, that's when the work really starts. Mm. It's just... Like I said before, you know when you say you're like a 15-year-old just walked out into a 25-year-old's life? Well, when you're taking drugs, you can deny that you're that 15-year-old. Mm. But then when you remove the drugs, you basically got to accept, oh, actually, I'm really not that mature. I don't fit in in any scenario whatsoever. The work I've built for myself, I don't feel like I can manage it. Uh, the relationship I have, I'm not mature enough to have it. Mm. The friendships I have, none of them were real because they were all based around drugs. Don't like either of my parents. I can't speak to either of them. I have zero friends. I have nothing. Mm. Like that's what it was to walk out of rehab. Literally came out, don't know who I am. Don't know how to love. Realise I hate myself. And all I need to do is just try and stop using drugs to block all this feeling out. Insane. <laughs> that's the only objective I've got really is stay clean. Mm. Like... All I know is drugs. All I know is drink. All I know is that life. And I basically just had to rip that whole thing away. Mm. And I have nothing and no one. Where do I start? Mm. And that that's... You can see why people relapse, right? Why they come yeah, out and they sure. go... From what you've just explained, yeah. Do you know what I mean? They come out and they go, fuck that. <laughs> so, right, I have to disconnect from everything and everyone I've ever known because they're all related to drink and drugs. Okay. Uh, I can't go out with anybody at work anymore. I don't really feel like I fit in anywhere. I don't, I feel like I can't even talk the way I used to because I used to always be drunk or drinking or taking drugs. So I can't socialize anymore. I don't feel, I'm not confident anymore. I've got zero confidence. I don't know how to talk to girls anymore. All of this was fueled by drink and drugs and all of the tools that I had other than work. It's the only thing I had that I was good at that. I, Cause I never did drugs while I worked. So the only thing I did have was the ability to do my job. So that was kind of good. But that was kind of fifth on my list. Do you know what I mean? I still had to be able to function in society. I had to build new friends. I had to be able to have fun. I had to find things that were enjoyable for myself. I had to learn who I was. I had to continue therapy and understanding who I was. Mm. Mate, yeah, it was it was hard to adjust to, to life outside of rehab, for sure. Mm. And what did you do to stay clean? 12-step fellowship meetings, exercise, meditation, therapy every single week, sometimes twice a week. Three meetings a week I did, actually. Three 12-step fellowship meetings a week. Um, I got a sponsor who's still my best friend today, stayed here yesterday. Um, and I never, ever stopped working on myself every single day. And committed to all of those things for the rest of my life basically apart from 12 step fellowships which I don't do anymore but the rest I do mm. and then obviously as the time went on I incorporated cold water into that as well and breath work into that you know which because I, I didn't do them for the first two years so instead of doing meetings now I do cold water and breath work mm. and journaling so yeah there's a lot of that's just what I did but there's so many things that you can you can try, but my advice to anybody is try everything, mm. everything. And the, the thing is like, you're, you shouldn't have that much time for other people and helping others along the way, really, because you're, you are a huge project to understand and heal yourself. So if you're filling, if you're doing, if you're giving the correct level of commitment to yourself, then you shouldn't really have much space and time for anything other than healing you. Is there a link between trauma and addiction? 100% there's a link between trauma and addiction because a lot of trauma triggers low self-worth. It's not to say that people who have suffered trauma become ad become addicts because they don't. And also people who have never suffered trauma also become addicts. But there is a definite link between 
people who have been traumatized and addiction because there is, I'd say at least half of the addicts I've ever met have probably more, I'd say maybe like 70% have suffered some level of trauma. Hmm. And the more severe the trauma, the more heavy the addiction it would seem. Especially when it's something to do with a parent or like sexual abuse and stuff like that. It's it does something to the child where their 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 self worth is completely destroyed. Their world, their perception of the world is changed forever, mm. forever, um, until that until that the adult manages to undo it themselves as they grow. But when you're traumatized by a parent who's supposed to love you, your perception of love changes and your perception of yourself is shifted onto what they believe instead of what you believed about yourself. Because when you're five, you don't really have much of a belief about yourself. You're not really looking inwards. You're mm. just happy and quite a sweet, lovely, innocent child, pure. Mm. And you're, you're yet to learn who you are and your parents don't normally know who you are either, but yet they're telling you you're this and you're that. Mm. And if, if they're filling your head with things like you're fucking worthless and I hate you, I wish you wasn't born and all this kind of stuff, your perception is what they're teaching you. Mm. And you're convinced that that's real. Mm. You don't know anything else. No. Mm. You don't know what a loving parent looks like. You don't know what a, a, a happy, safe, secure environment is. Mm. That makes no sense to you. Almost unbelievable. I, I just, I couldn't believe that when I saw things that were, if I went to a friend's house and it was all nice and happy, I just thought it was like they were acting. Mm. It made a fucking sense. I loved it. I loved being in that environment. It was great. And if it wasn't for a lot of the parents that I, of, of my friends growing up, I probably would be a lot less functional than I am today. Mm. But it was bizarre to me. Yeah, it was bizarre, but it definitely changed my my perception of me and the way I feel about me. And as a result, that enabled me to, sorry, that didn't enable me. That made me more susceptible to addiction, I feel, because I needed to stop feeling that way. Because as a child, you, your, your brain has the ability to completely block out this stuff, these feelings of inadequacy, of low self-worth, of low self-esteem. Your child's brilliant to keep itself safe. Mm. It will just completely shut it off like okay i don't feel that because it's too painful for a child to experience that so mm. your brain has it's why people get you know like um where people have blackouts or they've completely blanked memories because they've been so traumatized by mm. it it's the same as a child your, your brain can just completely compartmentalize and bury it and acknowledge it but what always happens to those people is as adults something triggers it snaps and then it comes out but as you get older, like these inadequacies and these low self, low, those feelings of low self worth, they start to they start to submerge. They start to appear, and you then turn to things that you have found for a very dysfunctional life that you've had to to feel better. Mm. And obviously, along the way as well, the friends that you're going to attract are dysfunctional like you. So the people that you've got to turn to for advice are dysfunctional, as as dysfunctional as you. So you've got no one to guide you or tell you what's right or wrong. Mm. So these group of people, they just come together and they that's why they all end up the same, always end up addicted to drugs, always end up doing the same things, living the same lives and becoming the same person. And it's very few, sadly, manage to find a way out. Mm. How can you best help an addict? Firstly, you can't help an addict that doesn't want to help themselves. So if someone doesn't want to get clean, leave them alone and let them get to a place where they do want to. And that sadly may be a really low rock bottom for them. And there's nothing that you can say or do that will stop them. Probably one of the hardest things about trying to help someone is, is, is letting them go. But when somebody does want to get clean, love them love them and support them, be patient with them, forgive them. And 
applaud them for their efforts that they're they're making and trying and just try and encourage them to continue with what they're doing and but don't baby them don't mother them don't don't um micromanage them and try and do their recovery for them mm. never going to work someone will get clean when they want to get clean that's it mm. people don't want to get clean people who try and get clean for other people's sake say a mum or a partner family member that wants them to get better never works only works when they're ready mm. only works when they want it for themselves it doesn't work when they're trying to do it for somebody else because it's just a lot of pressure i think like basically i've got to do this otherwise they don't love me or they don't want it or yeah it's it's, it's got to come from within i think so so yeah those are the ways in which I would say not to and to help someone. What do you think of drug users now? <laughs> What's your view on them? I hate them, if I'm honest. <laughs> I, I hate being around them. I don't hate them when they're not using. Cool. I hate seeing people use. I hate seeing people really, really drunk. I don't mind people that are tipsy, but I, yeah, I I hate people taking drugs because I see them regress into something that they're not. They become less and less of themselves. And the, the ironic thing is that when you're in the situation where you are taking the drugs, you think that the version of you that you're becoming is better than the version of you before. Mm. And I've never seen that. In, since I've been clean, I've never seen one person take drugs and be a better, more fun or kind or nicer person than they were before they were taken. Mm. Never. I've always liked the person before. Mm. Like I went out to dinner with my brother and his mates and I just, the start of the night was lovely and it went on to being a night out. Dinner was lovely, really nice communication, lovely chat, really got on with everybody. And then as the night progressed... People just become less and less and less of themselves and more and more of the drugs. And I just like them less and less. They were argumentative, loud, rude, starting arguments with random strangers. And I was just like, why do people pay to do this? Like, why did I pay to do this? Mm. Like, you're an arsehole. You were lovely earlier. I couldn't, couldn't have said a bad word about you, but now you're just a dick. Mm. And it's like, it's crazy that, that we all pay. we all pay for that. We all pay to go out and get smashed, get drunk and take drugs to become the worst version of ourselves is what I feel. That was going to be one of the questions was how do you feel when going out to events where drink and drugs are available? I feel okay up until a certain point. Like I don't ever, I used to feel probably bad if I'd seen drugs, I'd just go home. Because I couldn't, I, I didn't want to be around it. It scared me a little bit. So I, I just had like a a, diff, a coping mechanism of if I don't feel comfortable, I'll leave, and I always left. There's nothing now that makes me feel uncomfortable, so it has changed. But what I do start to feel is frustrated, mm. because witnessing people become less of themselves is frustrating, mm. and knowing what I know about drinking drugs and seeing and being observant of those behaviors that they cannot see because they're in it. I become more frustrated than they are because they, they're not seeing how stupid they sound or how annoying they are or how frustrating they're becoming. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like everybody does that goes out and get drunk, gets drunk. And if you're all drunk, you're all in the same boat. Mm. So none of you see anything wrong with it. And if I was drinking, I'd probably be saying the same thing, but as a sober person being out in that environment, it just becomes very boring. It becomes, it doesn't feel meaningful. Mm. That's how it feels to me. I'm very used to now in my life, I'm very used to meaningful relationships with yourself, with everybody. You know me, it's, we have very honest and open conversations. Mm. We can be very, um, we can be very vulnerable mm. and very truthful with one another about where we're at in life and whatever it is. Like never a moment is there, like a dull situation that we have. It's always kind. It's always nice. It's always mm -hmm. pleasant. It's always mature to a certain degree. We can obviously be lads and be stupid, but yeah, it's all, it always seems to be sort of on a really lovely note. But mm -hmm. when I go into that situation, it seems very tainted, very dark, very pointless. 
very fake. And none of, no one remembers any of it either. So what I, what I don't like as well. So if I have a conversation with you right now and I tell you, Stuart, I love you so much. I really do. You're like a brother to me, which I have said to you. And I said, mm. oh, like, great. You walk away, you remember that. Mm. And you know I meant it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I fucking, I love him. I love Zach. I'm so glad he told me that. Perhaps I needed to hear that. Yeah. You go out on the night out. I'm drunk and I'm leaning over you, slurring that same sentence to you. Mm. You're fucking drunk. Next day, what do you feel? Embarrassed. Mm. Fucking hell, I sound like, because you were pouring your heart. We're having like a, yeah, you know, yeah, where yeah. you have that bromance drunk, drunk. moments. Yeah, yeah. And you, you get all lovey with your best pal and you say all this shit and you, and you don't, you, the next day you don't even acknowledge it. Mm. Don't say it to, oh, do you remember we were chatting? Or if you did, it would be like that. Oh God, sorry, I was a mm. fucking idiot last time. I was getting like a right soppy gun. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Didn't mean it. Yeah. I didn't mean it. Sorry, I only said it because I was pissed. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing real about that for me. Mm. There's nothing, there's no substance to that. Like, I'd prefer to be able to say, I'm comfortable in enough enough in myself as a man to be able to say that to to you or to the people that I really care mm. about now. Mm. And the sad thing is that those, those situations, they probably actually do mean those things and they do really want to tell that person how much they care about them, but mm. they're so socially trained to not mm. do that as a man, especially that they can't express true feelings of love and, and emotion to another man that they care about so much. Mm. And only through drink and drugs, they can say it in a really stupid and embarrassing moment that they may feel later on, they should have never said, mm. do you know what I mean? So that's, that's what I, I guess my view, where my perspective on it has changed. And it's probably quite a strong view and opinion of it. Maybe that's not the case for everybody, of course. And maybe some people do say those things and they do mean them. And the next day they don't feel embarrassed about it. And they, they can do all of that stuff whilst being drunk and still mean it. But I feel like for the most part, my experience was was like that. And what I see of other people and... Mm. You know, that that's that's kind of a shame, really, I think. I think that the our in the UK our our society and our social circumstances have, have led to that sort of behaviour. Mm. Well, just to add to that, that was the there's one other question which was what do you think of alcohol now? We can we'll answer that one afterwards, but I more so just wanted to actually ask this one. Gen well not even ask it but agree with you a hundred percent in what you just said, because coming at it from the other angle, obviously I drank, I don't drink excessively. I drink like maybe once, twice a month, maybe. Yeah. And it'll always be like a barbecue with a family or something. I don't, I never go out, I don't do clubs, I don't do any of that shit. And I only drink either whiskey or Guinness and they just happen to be my drinks. And I feel like I can drink them all day. And even at like one o'clock in the morning, I'm not stumbling about, I'm not falling about, I'm still having conversations with people and shit. So I feel like they're my drinks. But one thing that I do 100% agree with you on is the fact that you, Liam, Scotty, Ginger Mitch, any of them, I could sit in a room with them and have a proper, honest, authentic chat Mm. with any of you about breath work, about I talk to you all the time about breath work Mm. or ice baths and how I love the feeling that it has on my mental health. Mm. And you, I feel like I could sit here and talk to you about my mental health. I feel Mm. like I could sit here and cry in front of you if I wanted to and Mm. you wouldn't judge me. And Mm. it's that environment and that's very authentic. However, if I was to go to the pub on a Saturday... I wouldn't sit there with the boys and be like, oh, that, that lads have done this quality breath work this morning. Just because, just, and you're 100% right in that. You don't, you don't have them conversations. And I think it's, I think it's equal because it is nice to sit there and talk about football and what's happened this week yeah, and the yeah, misses yeah. And, and stuff like that. But I do think that there is definitely, you're 100% right in that you don't have meaningful, they're not meaningful conversations and they're not, they're not authentic. The thing is we can be, we can do both when you're sober, right? We can talk about the football or we can talk about, like we can talk about lads, lads stuff, like dating girls and all that kind of, like Mm. that's easy conversation, but we can also do the deep stuff as well, Mm. which you've only got one genre in there, which is lads. (laughs) In the pub, isn't it? It's like, puff your chest out. Like that is a like stereotypical man type behavior that you have to have in the pub. Very, it's not, it's not like you come in and go, yeah. it's just a really bad row with the missus guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. All, the, all this breath work brought me to tears Oh yeah, this, this breath work. Oh my God, it was so emotional guys. Honestly, I, got, <laughs> I need to talk to you about this. 
They'd be like, get the fuck out. Yeah. Put your vagina away. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of banter you'd yeah. get, wouldn't it? So, yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I don't, and I don't get me wrong, there's obviously settings for both. But I just feel like that's what alcohol promotes. It promotes that inability to to be a, a genuine self or true self and, and yeah, authentic, like you said. Mm. So in total, what do you think of alcohol now? I think it can be great. Like, don't get me wrong, it can be great. Like when I see people tipsy, like my missus when she's tipsy, she cracks me up. She's so lovely and sweet and cuddly and even more even more so than she is on a daily basis and she's like well funny so i love that she doesn't i've not seen her get like stupid drunk other than whizzle on day she got a little bit little bit more than tipsy not like on the floor drunk but that's only one time but so that i don't mind that i quite like people when they're in that so it's when they go past that mm. when people are drunk don't think there's I don't like anything about that at all. Mm. I don't think there's anything valuable about it. I don't think there's any. I think that could bring anything good to anyone's life ever. Mm. I just think it kills so many people when they're that drunk. People falling in lakes, falling into roads. Mm. So it's just there's nothing about that, that that's good. So I've got mixed reviews. <laughs> I guess half mm. of me says like part of it I like, and I I'm envious of that. I'm envious of being able to have two or three beers. Like that's- oh, that was going to be one of my questions. Is that something that you ever think to yourself, oh, I would love to just have, but then I suppose you could have zero beers. It's the same taste. No, no. My point is three beers the would buzz. make me a drunk. Yeah, I'd be not, not super drunk, not prob- probably tipsy, maybe yeah. even two beers. And that, especially now, probably one pint of Stella, I'd be tipsy because yeah. I haven't drunk for so long. And I, I, that merry feeling is lovely. I'm not a dick. I'm not horrible. I'm not rude to people. Yeah, like I'm just, that. I'm just bubbly and funny. And you know what I mean, I can deal. With, I'm, I'm all right with that. And I, and I admire seeing people that are in that state because it's funny. You can even be a little bit quick witted with it, quicker witted. You'd probably say a few things that you wouldn't normally say. Mm. Do you know what I mean that's fine? Like in my personal opinion, but it's when they go beyond that point. People who are legless who are blind drunk and just don't even know who they are anymore, falling all over the place, being rude, starting fights and all that kind of shit that comes with it. Mm. I've got no time for anyone in that state ever. Would you ever try it again or not? Purely because of the, because I don't think you're probably the most healed person out of everyone I know from the remit. Mm. And I, I, I would never put you down as somebody that would ever do drugs again. No. So why, why would you not, if you, if you sort of miss, not necessarily miss, but if you, if you would I've like, never had like that. if you'd like to feel that buzz. Yeah. What I'm talking about there is not something that, that I can do. Right. I've never, I think probably twice in my life I've ever been able to just have two or three beers and go home. Hmm. But you're a different person now. You're much, you're mm, further uh, along. Yeah. But that's not really how the disease works. Unfortunately, it, Picture it like this. So drugs are in like a, they, they mess up your limbic system in your brain. And that, which your limbic system is where your emotions live and your reward center lives. So when you eat, for example, it gives you like small amounts of dopamine released into this part of your brain to tell you that that's good and keep doing it because it's making, it's helping us. It's making us feel good, releases dopamine. So when you drink alcohol, it, it basically, if you keep drinking it consistently, it goes up the order of things in terms of priorities in the reward system. Right, yeah. um, and drugs, class A's give you fucking loads. So it goes right to the top of your reward system. Right. So imagine it's like lights, yeah? So imagine like a little system of lights like this and one of them at the top, you've got cocaine mm. and then you've got fucking ecstasy. Then you've got alcohol and then you've got all the normal things that you would live on, like eating and affection and love sex. and sex. Sex is actually probably, wow, uh, sex would come underneath uh, alcohol actually because it's the top. Mm. That's the most we reward you get. I can imagine that's in there. So yeah, all of the, so they'll go in order of how much dopamine they give you. Dopamine is the, the most you can get naturally is through orgasm, right? Because we're built to reproduce. So that would be the, normally would be the top. Mm. But because once you become an addict, basically it sends like cocaine and alcohol to the top, whatever your drug of choices were. Mm. When you're, when you stop using, just imagine you haven't taken them out and put them back to the bottom. All you've done is turn the lights off. Mm. As soon as you take them, the lights are back on. Right, yeah. So they're yeah. still there. Mm. They're just dormant. It's like a volcano waiting to erupt. Mm. But do you feel like that? 
I don't feel like that, but I believe that that is what has happened. Really? Like, yeah, I, I know sure. that it wouldn't happen straight away. If I started drinking alcohol, it would just be like starting my addiction all over again. Right, so right. I wouldn't go zero. It would probably be a lot. Obviously, it took me like, what, seven years to get addicted last time. I'd probably do it in about a year and a half. Right. It would just slowly progress. It would be the same as before, just in a more condensed time frame. Mm. So I would probably get, I'd probably go out and I'd start drinking and I'd be fine. Mm. Like, oh yeah, sound I'm all right. Had three beers, came home. Mm. Phil Mary had a good time, no problem. Next time, three beers again. Next time, three beers again. Following time, four beers. Yeah. Next time, five beers. Next time, five beers and a gram. Next time, five beers and two grams. Next time, seven beers and three grams and so on and so on. Yeah. Till eventually, I'm on my own again yeah. in a fucking... Fucked re- everything. Yeah, fucked everything, lost everything. And that, I know that's what would happen. I just know it. Yeah, I, 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 I know because as much as I envy the the tipsy state that I describe, what I really want is to feel wasted. Mm. I know that part of yeah, me yeah, is yeah. still there. Mm. I want to feel high. I know I still, I know I'll still always, I don't know what it is to do that. I'm envious of it because I don't know how to do it. And I wish I could. Mm. I only know a hundred miles an hour. Mm. I only know drink to get drunk. I only know like hitting it to the absolute limit. Mm. Do it to the maximum. I mean, even like it now, like, when I eat chocolate, I eat all of it. Like, mm. I couldn't just have a few Milky Bar buttons. Yeah, I'm like that, yeah. I'll fucking munch the whole bag. And then if there's another bag, I'll have another bag. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because I want all the flavour now. That's weird that you <laughs> say that, right? And obviously you're talking about addiction because if I'm, for example, at the minute, I've gone on holiday in a month. So I've, the last, I've actually been really, really good for the last month and a half, nearly two months. I'm going gym every day, hit, running, 10K steps, mm. ice baths breath work, all that shit, whatever. And every now and then, very, very small windows. I do the carnival diet pretty religiously, but sometimes on like one Friday night in like maybe every other week or something, just on one night, I allow myself to have like a Nando's or something. Mm. But as soon as I have that sauce in the Nando's, the bread on it, a couple of the chips with the, the, <laughs> this thing and a bit of garlic bread, as soon as I get that taste... Before I've even put my fork down, I'm in the car into Sainsbury's and I'm buying a pack of hobnobs and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and my thing is Stringing massive it. Ben and Jerry's. And, and my girlfriend laughs and she's she's always like, you can't just have your treat night. It's just a meal. She was like, you go off the rails. And, stuff. and I do do that. I do but do, do you that. know why? It's the same principle on a lot lower scale. Yeah. Um, it's releasing dopamine. That right. food that you're eating is exciting you, releasing dopamine. Mm. And that, when that dopamine gets released, it, it goes, what else can I get? Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. the same with alcohol for me. But it just shows you, don't you think, that if I'm experiencing that and I can't control that, I yeah, will yeah. put my hands up, I cannot control yeah. it. I'm in the car, I'm on my and way. I'm already, I'm already, I can already taste the cookie <laughs> yeah. though. Like, so, I, uh, it, yeah, I mean, obviously on a much smaller scale, but you can imagine on the highest scale on on that, like drugs and yeah. well, like, it's, getting it's, over it's that as an addiction. It's exactly the same principle. There's no difference. The only difference is the amount of dopamine. Mm. So your tolerance for dopamine is a lot lower than what mine would have been. Mm. So I'd have been used to getting a thousand units of dopamine. Like what you're talking about is like maybe 10 to 20 units of dopamine mm. for food. And then, oh, I can get another 30 to 40 units with chocolate because it's sugar and it releases like, it releases mm. quicker. Whereas I'm just, t- you times it the amount by 50 and then you've got the same effect of what drugs are, drugs do. Mm. Or alcohol is the same. It does release dopamine, but slower over a long period of time, but it releases quite a lot of it. But once you get that first taste of alcohol, when that flood of dopamine gets into your brain, your immediate thought as an addict will be, what can I get that's going to release more of this? Because I like it. Mm. Your brain is going, because the reward system is saying, this is good for you, take more. Mm. That's what it's telling you. That's what the reward system is made for. It's saying, this is good for you, take more, do more of it. So mm-hmm. when you eat, it gives you dopamine to tell you, yeah, keep doing that. Keeps you alive. Mm. I'm going to make you feel good on eating and drinking water because that is making that's going to keep us alive. And obviously reproduction, we're, because we're wired to do that. So I'm going, to, I'm going to reward you the most for that because I want you to keep reproducing. That's mm. how we want to survive to pass ourselves on is to do is to reproduce. So that's why the most rewards there. Put drugs mm. times everything by ten. Mm-hmm. So that makes it even harder. But that's why yeah. people get addicted to sex as well because of the dopamine is the highest that we can release. Mm. So, yeah. Just a quick one, if you want. I don't know whether you want to end it there, but um, I did read somewhere that, obviously with, uh, I think I was 
researching ice baths and the whole thing of obviously you get that spike of dopamine when you get that the, the original flinch that spike of dopamine and then and obviously it's quite a long period of like four to six hours before it goes down to base level yep. but what i did hear about drugs it might have even been you that said it at one point and then i found it out from doing research as well was when you do drugs and when you do things like cocaine and stuff although you get that quick spike and then the quick fall back down actually it falls down below your original yeah. base level so every yeah, time because you've used all of your dopamine yeah so every time you're actually lowering your base level of dopamine and that's why the first line the is it, no nothing is ever as good as the first line mm. when you do coke because so say your your baseline's here of dopamine which you always have yeah mm. and then you take um take coke or do a line of coke it goes bang because it floods all of this dopamine into your system but as soon as you crash down the dopamine level is lower than what it was because you've used it all. Mm. So it goes poof, straight down here. So you've got none left. Mm. So then you're constantly trying to get up as high as you did before, but you won't reach that height because you started higher than you were bef- than the low that you're at. So you're never going to get back up to there. Mm. So yeah, I understand that whole thing. <laughs> this is sadly, that's the whole reason drugs are addictive because they do in your mind chemically feel great. Mm. They will chemically tell you that you should keep doing this. Mm. And one we didn't speak about was nicotine as well. And I feel bad for like I used to smoke and then I went on to vaping and I feel like if vaping weren't invented, I never would have quit smoking. Really? And now when I look at people that are smoking, I actually feel sorry for them because mm. I know how addictive that is. And I've even, I quit vaping for like three years and then started again two years ago. And I've only just quit for the last six months. Do you know why nicotine is one of the hardest ones? Again, you don't see the consequences. Mm. The consequences come years later. You know, so for addiction, the consequences period ha- turns up after about 10 years, yeah? Mm. You're looking at 50, 60 years with smoking mo- for most people. So because it's so far down the line, the consequences that, that, that come up for it, you just you can just keep going. And no one's really, other than like someone who loves you, they're gonna, always going to go, oh, you need to fucking stop. But for the most part, you're walking down the street smoking or vaping, no one's going to say shit. It's a normal thing. Again, it's just normal. So no one's going to have a problem with it and you don't really see the consequences of your actions in the short term. So that's what I think makes it really, really hard to give up. But mm. obviously it is possible. You've done it. I've done it. So yeah, is uh, is an interesting one though. Mm. On that note, I think we'll finish. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>